Good morning, church. It's good to see your smiling faces today, masked or unmasked. Um, I love you, and I'm so glad that you're here. And thank you for honoring the Lord uh, with your presence today. If you're online, uh, we welcome you. If you're on the roof up there, getting grilled. We love you, and uh, I hope that uh, you get something out of the service today. I, uh, I don't ever want to take for granted the immense privilege that it is to be able to come together with God's people and to worship him. Um, I'm going to go ahead and address uh, as best I can and shortly the elephant in the room, and then we'll be uh, off and running here this morning. Uh, I want to begin... I'm not just talking about why, why we're here today and why, why we're open. Um, I want to begin with just, there's kind of three reasons, and we'll be very quick about it. Uh, one is uh, kind of based on the data. Obviously, we're in the life business here uh, at church, both eternal and temporal, trying to help people experience abundant life. We care a lot about health. I've, um, I get a front row seat to uh, the beginning of life and the end of life. Um, and at all points in between, in the poignant moments in people's lives. Uh, we take it very seriously. Um, we don't believe that uh, there's a material danger of anybody's health being at risk here. Um, uh, they're cumulatively to this point, over nine months worth of time, uh, less than 2% of our county has, has had COVID. Uh, so the odds of getting it are, are very, very rare. Uh, within that, 1.7%, uh, according to the county's website, uh, through last uh, Thursday, uh, 1.7 of the less than 2% uh, were traced back to churches. Most of that is in the south uh, county, and most of that is from churches who didn't take any precautions, which, as you know, the reason we're doing 8 billion services and everything like that is to make sure uh, that we can, we can accommodate distancing and things like that. And so I do want to say, just at the data level, if we thought, uh, and it may be that we have to reconsider it at some point down the road, but right now we don't believe that there's a material risk going on. More importantly are the next two reasons. One is ministry. I think one of the things that gets lost in all of this is what goes on on the ground. Uh, that, that each one of those numbers is a, is a story. And that there are every number of people that are still healthy, there are still stories going on. Nobody's been untouched by it. Um, there are things I could tell you about things going on in the lives of our, of our, of our people uh, who have uh, wrestled uh, depression and other things, and even to the point now of, of, of attempting to take their life. Uh, more than one in our midst. Um, those kinds of things are something that for a pastor weigh very heavily on you. Um, today, uh, we were supposed to have a funeral in this building, and we will have that funeral in this building. Um, and, and the reason, I'm not going to because, um, and just so you know, in case you're wondering about the, the soaring rates, um, the, the case rate went up 1.2 cases per 100,000 people. And so we went over the seven mark, and we're now in the mid-eights. Um, and, and that's per 100,000 people in a county of 3.38 million people. Um, so for me to go overnight, um, kind of an arbitrary line, of course, every state has different guidelines and where they place the, uh, that conscientious mark, but for me to go to a family who's already in grief and tell them I'm sorry uh, because arbitrarily we decided that Saturday night at midnight we're going we're gonna to shut everything down, you can no longer have that here and pile grief on grief. I'm just not going to do that. Ethically, I just have some real problems with that. So there are a lot of those things that go on on a daily basis for most pastors in the country, okay? Uh, that beyond just, uh, hey, our, our chief goal is trying to keep everybody physically healthy, it's also important that we, 
we care to the other needs that people have, both spiritual and everything else. There's obviously a lot of stuff going on in our church that's extremely awesome and positive. You know, our teens are, are running like double what our previous records were for teen attendance at the weekly gatherings. I mean, it's amazing, you know? So for me to then go and pull the rug out because of 1.2 out of 100,000 people, most of which are down south, not even close to here, just seems a little bit strange. But the, the bigger one is theological, okay? I want you to be able to look at me and say, when that guy says that us getting together is important, he believes it, okay? When I ask you to invite your friends, it's because I think it matters, all right? So for the band who, again, the the easy way out of this is just to to just shut down. It's cheaper, it's a lot less effort, um, and just, and you'd have a lot of reasons to do so. And I'm not judging anybody else. I'm not judging anybody who doesn't feel comfortable coming back. Our mantra has always been, we're ready when you're ready. Uh, so, So don't feel bad about it if you're not ready. That's fine, that's fine. But for those who are, uh, we don't believe that withholding uh, in-person worship and ministry is the right approach. And I always try to use the judgment day test. Judgment day test goes like this. Okay, when I'm standing before God someday and I'm giving an account for everything that I did, where would I like to cast my argument? Like, where am I going to have the best case based on the values I know he holds? And when I start down that path, then I remember, oh yeah, you know, at, at the end of, the, of, of time, I'm going to be standing before Almighty God, not, not Gavin Newsom. <laughs> so I have to be able to justify why uh, I stopped for the ninth month in a row, uh, saying, no, we're not going to get together. Now, again, that doesn't mean, I know that there, I mean, don't send me these emails because I've heard it all, all right? Uh, the church is the people, not the building. We all understand that. I also know that online church was not the New Testament ideal. They would have been very forward-thinking if they thought online church is what they were talking about, okay? Um, being together uh, matters a lot. Um, and so I hope you understand. I guess you do because you're here. So uh, with that in mind, I want us to keep going. Uh, we want to continue to pray for those in leadership. Uh, I want you to know, too, it was a staff board decision, unanimous, zero dissent. Like, we all felt like this was the time. Uh, we're not doing it to be rogue. We're not, this is not a political statement. It's a theological statement, okay? It's a statement about our love for people, and uh, that's why we're continuing to go online. We're offering, we opened up two services on the roof. So we're, we're rolling with six deep on services right now just to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep people safe at the same time, understanding that we got hope in a world that is out of it right now, okay? So we're going to offer that. And with that in mind, I want to offer a prayer, and we're going to keep going today, all right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're here for you. Uh, We hope that you're pleased with our sacrifice of praise. And so now, Father, for your promises, we give you great thanks. For Father, for the times we have (laughs) maybe made them up, put words in your mouth. Uh, We give you uh, our repentance, Father, and we ask that the truth be a clarion call uh, to us today, that we would hear uh, what you're saying, that we would be smart and wise and how we deal with one another, how we speak to one another, how we speak in public uh, about the different issues of the day. But Father, right now, we ask that your truth-telling, thundering voice be in our midst, that we walk out of here feeling empowered and like we have uh, experienced something that has encouraged us today. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. The promises of God.
Now, we talked about this. There's at least four types in the Bible, all right? You've got the conditional, unconditional, specific, and imaginary. Specific are God makes a promise to Abraham or to a particular generation of people. So he tells Abraham, though you're old, though your wife is old, even though you guys are in your 90s, she's going to get pregnant and have a child. Now, most of us can be very grateful, especially anybody over 90, I'm guessing, will say, I'm glad that was just for Sarah and not for me. Um, you know, that, that's given to a particular uh, person, or David is given the promise that a descendant of his will never cease to be on the throne. That's given to David. It's not given to me. Uh, there are generational promises and such that are very, very similar. There are unconditional and conditional promises. Conditional are if, then, you do this, I'll do that kind of covenant-based things. You have unconditional, which are I will always love you, I will be with you, things like that that really are not conditional. They're just promises of God that he gives to help um, help people understand uh, how much he loves them, uh, and they are things you can build your life on, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But today we're going to pay a visit to the imaginary promises of God. Now, we talked about these in week one. The imaginary promises of God are ones that aren't promises of God. They're figments of my imagination. They're things I made up that I think God did, or I have an incentive to believe God made as a promise. The imaginary promises of God are promises that we think God made or we want God to have made, but that he never actually made. Now, I know a lot of people that have given up on God because they think he was unfaithful to a promise they made that he didn't make himself. So, uh, you know, you can kind of go through a bunch of them. Uh, we'll take this one. Uh, God's people are uh, hypocrites, so therefore I don't believe in God, as though the promise underneath it, which is that uh, God's people would be relatively perfect, uh, is underneath it that God promised that his people would be so above reproach uh, that, that for one of them to be out of reproach would actually call into question whether he exists or not. Um, as though there are no hypocrites outside the church. As though any of that has anything to do with the existence of God or not. Uh, there are a lot of obnoxious cowboy fans out there. I don't doubt whether the Dallas Cowboys exist. Right? So when we come up with these things that then draw into question what we, what we think, right? Now that doesn't take away from the damage that hypocrisy does. It doesn't mean God endorses hypocrisy. And in fact, we need to be aware that our witness is attached to our behavior and what we say and take that very seriously. It's one of many reasons why we have to be very careful to live out the faith uh, that we aspire to. But um, we create these typically from scratch. Um, like a, you know, like a Reese's peanut butter cup, sometimes we'll take a, some, two good things and put them together and make one promise, but together they're not really a promise anymore. They may be good, and they may taste good to us, but it is no longer chocolate or peanut butter. It is now a Reese's peanut butter cup of promise, okay? Uh, sometimes... It's a matter of our will. I remember before I met my amazing wife that I've been married to for 20 years, thinking, and I'd watch others do this when I was in college, that, um, that, that will of, uh, you know, God is telling me that she is the one without her being aware that she was the one, right? But to me, she was the one. God had clearly spoken. 
in my mind, right? So you take that and then put it together with something else, right? Or maybe God says, hey, I will, if you have a relationship and you put me at the beginning, I will bless that relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, and I take it together with something else and I put it together in this kind of alloy that really isn't actually what God promised. So whether somebody says the church is full of hypocrites, you know, better said, the world's full of hypocrites. Okay, but it's based on the idea that, that, that true Christians would be perfect or very, very close to it. So to see people preaching one thing and doing another is proof that, uh, that God doesn't exist. So what will happen is, and I'm going to ask you to kind of, you know, you might want to in your group or something this week, talk about things that you've heard people say or something you've believed over time that necess isn't necessarily in the Bible, something God didn't actually promise. Uh, so we're going to take a look at a few of them today, but I want to begin in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. There in Genesis chapter 3, we meet the serpent. This is Adam and Eve. They're naked and unashamed, and they are enjoying the garden. And there, uh, they are uh, getting ready to um, just have a ball, and then the serpent kind of, I guess, hisses his way in to their life. And it says, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say, you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So from that day forward, the evil one has been asking us, did God really say that? So you got two sides to this. One is, did God really say that? That's where you take something God actually said, you know, uh, and, and, and talk about, did he, did, he, did he really say that? Do you really think he's going to ground you if you stay out a little later? Uh, do, do you really think it matters much if, I know he said that, but do you really think that God would, right, that's the serpent kind of version of this. Now, there's another which you see represented in, it's the same guy, same being, same evil one, who's a serpent in Genesis, shows up differently in the Gospels when Jesus is in the wilderness. And now he's quoting Scripture. And Jesus is hungry. He's fasting out there. And he tells him, tell these stones to become bread. Throw yourself off the edge of the temple. After all, the Psalms say this. And Jesus says, yeah, 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 but you don't put God to the test. It also says that. So it can come either way, right? It can come from we create something, most like LeBron does with the chalk before the basketball games. Whew. Up in the air it goes because I want to believe it. I'm going to create it. I'm going to speak it into existence. If I click my heels long enough, maybe it'll be true. Maybe if I, uh, if I pray to God to give it to me, maybe it'll be true. If I roll the dice, get my friends in on it, maybe I can make it true. 
Well, so you have that, and then you have the other one, which is to take Scripture, promises God actually made, and twist them. Just 10 degrees off that way. Not understanding that 10 degrees, when you carry it out over a long period of time, takes you very, very far. So whichever angle it comes from, those imaginary promises, okay, are born from a heart that wants its own way. It's what we want in here, which is why the transformation of our hearts is so important. So that our hearts become more truthful, so the things we want are more in alignment with what God wants, makes us less likely to create promises or take the promises he made and twist them for our own devices. Jeremiah 17, uh, 9, and 9 through 10 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Now, we always say, follow your heart. The Bible says, don't. <laughs> the heart is deceitful above all things. So that what we will, especially if that will is not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, our will can lead us astray and get us to where we create uh, some of these things. So we're going to take three imag common imaginary promises and just talk through what the Bible actually says about them. Because again, they're kind of Reese's peanut butter cups. They're not altogether wrong. We use the term occasionally at MVC, truish. They're kind of true, but not completely true. So here we go. Number one, God just wants me to be happy. Now behind this is something that's kind of true, right? God does want us to have abundant life. Uh, I think God enjoys the enjoyment of his children. And I do believe that following Jesus helps a person become more joyful and more happy. That's what the Bible teaches, right? Happiness is actually a byproduct of faithfulness to God. But it's not the end. God's biggest desire for us is not our happiness. It's actually going to be our holiness. We come into it assuming that happiness is this basic right of life, and then we bring it with us into the spiritual world where it sometimes converts into this belief, something like this. If God wants me to be happy and I'm not happy, then God failed. So if you're you going to do it as a math problem, it would look like this. God is synonymous with my happiness. My happiness means my stuff, my goals, my agenda, but if I don't get my stuff, my goals, and my agenda, that means I'm not happy, and therefore, there must not be a God. Okay, let's review for all the mathematicians in the room. God equals my happiness, okay? So meaning God wants my happiness. That's his chief. When he gets out of bed in the morning, if he gets out of bed, that's what he's thinking about. How can I make Tim happy? God equals my happiness. My happiness, what makes me happy is the stuff I want, my goals, my agenda. But if I don't get my stuff, my goals, and my agenda, then I'm not happy. And because I'm not happy, all this Christianity stuff must be bogus. There must not be a God because God wants me to be happy. Well, okay. Let's just take for, uh, for kicks here a couple of guys who lived it up. I mean, took the best they could get their hands on, held nothing back. We're going to start outside the Bible with King Abd. Eraman III of Spain. Say that 10 times fast. And he says, he says this. He goes, I have now reigned. This is from 960, the year 960. I have now reigned about 50 years in victory or peace 
Beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies, riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness. In this 50 years, I have numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. 50 years, he says, I had two weeks of happiness. Withheld nothing. He says, I got everything that a man could want. I got respect. I got stuff. I have pleasure. I have food and drink. I have whatever, right? And he says, yeah, if I put it all together, I think I've been happy for about two weeks out of 50 years. Now, like him, before him, was Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes. And he does the same thing. He's looking for the meaning of life. And when he does, he says he, he withholds nothing. I'm going to eat what I want, drink what I want, sleep with whoever I want. I'm going I'm to put my hand to the plow and try and achieve vocational success. Uh, I'm going to go about it. I'm going to experience pleasure as much as it can be experienced in this world. He gets all the way down, and after each refrain, he says, it's all vanity, chasing after the wind. And he gets to the end of the book, and his summation is, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's the climax of Ecclesiastes. Albert Schweitzer said, happiness is nothing more than good health and a bad memory. <laughs> you know, people that have gone out and sought it have always been able to find that when you try and grasp for things like that, it just, it's like sand through your fingers. It just goes. Which is why you get a different picture in Scripture. You hear the echo of it in Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments. Another way we hear it is in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed or happy, same word. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the poor in spirit. It's almost like he's saying that happiness is a byproduct of pursuit of godliness. That when we pursue the objectives of God, then all of a sudden happiness is given. It's almost like if you seek the kingdom First, and his righteousness and all those things will be added to you as well. But when you pursue that as the end, when you pursue that stuff as the end, you miss it. You miss it. So while we say to ourselves, oh, God just wants me to be happy, God's actual promise is God wants us to be holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, but now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy, for the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. God is not fundamentally concerned with the pleasures of our flesh. He's concerned mostly with the transformation of our hearts. Number two, this is more of a colloquialism that we throw around. When God closes a door, he opens a window. This is a way of us trying to encourage one another sometimes. But it's also a way of getting God to say yes to whatever we want. God closes the door, let me ask you, if he closed the door, why would he open a window? Why didn't he just open the door? What we mean is don't get your head down, God's still got a plan for you, I think something like that. But what ends up happening is when we say when God, open, when God closes the door, he opens a window, if that window's shut, then people feel betrayed. 
Hey, I thought if I came to Christ, I thought if I believed in God that that window would be open. And in fact, a lot of doors would continue to open right in, in front of me. But God closing a door and opening a window is a way of us kind of saying, look, God, um, look, even when you say no, what you really mean is yes. So even if you just say no, you, you, you really want to say yes, admit it. Or a yes, no hybrid Yo, <laughs> something like that. You're going to eventually, I mean, I, the, the chance that you would say no to me doesn't exist. So if God closes the door, he's going to open the window. When in reality, what we're saying is God said no, I'm going to try to break the window open and crawl out. When in reality, we ought to be thankful when we're pursuing what God's heart is. If we ask God to lead us instead of saying, God, give me this, and if he doesn't, then getting mad at God, saying, God, whatever your will is, not my will but yours be done, and then if God closes the door, you're thankful. You want the door to be shut. And yes, I've been there. I'm there all the time. There's something I would like to see happen, and so I'm praying for it. I'm asking God to give it to me. Etc. Etc. But sometimes, and we talked about this earlier in the series, sometimes it's, you can't handle that, man. And it's God's grace that shuts the door and seals the window. In fact, boards up all windows. And it's out of his mercy that he does that. It's not because he doesn't like giving good gifts to his children. He loves giving good gifts to his children. The Bible says good gifts, but not good as I define it, good as he defines it. Because if it were up to me from a spiritual standpoint, we don't eat so healthy. What we desire a lot is more like candy and a lot less like stuff that would actually be really good for us. And so God knows sometimes that some of the stuff we ask for isn't, isn't good for us or sometimes the door gets shut you know and God and God wants to open the door but this is said we quoted it last week Revelation 3 7 and 8 these are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open I know your deeds see I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut so the fake promise is, or imaginary promise, when God closes the door, he opens a window. God's actual promise is, when I close the door, it's closed. When I open a door, it's open. And he does both. He opens and closes. But what Scripture says is, God actually controls. He's the one with the key. The key of David, as it says there in Revelation. So, he can open a door if he wants to, and he can close it. And if he's opened it, nobody can close it. And if he closes it, you can't open it. And I'm going to suggest to you that's good news. It's only bad news if you insist upon your own will. If you insist upon following your own desires and you view anything that God might determine as an infringement upon that, then it's bad news. But if I'm praying, not my will but yours be done, and God opens and shuts, then that's what I should want. And because he knows me better than I know myself, because he knows things about the people I engage with on a daily basis, he knows what I can handle, what I can't handle. There are a lot of people, they think they can handle anything. But 
are much more fragile than they think. Their hearts, their, the strength of their willpower is not as strong as they think. And it could be if you got the promotion, you would have made more money and you would have become materialistic and you would have done X and Y and Z. But because you'd also prayed to God that his will would be done, he says, okay, great, the door's shut then. Now, are you okay with that? Are you okay with God answering according to his will? Or must he answer according to mine? Somebody had an idea. Um, so, this last one, number three. <clears throat> Good people go to a pla better place when they die. All people go to a better place when they die. I had the assignment in a preaching class. I was probably 19, 20 years old. And he said, Tim, the assignment is prepare a funeral for a non-Christian. It had never occurred to me that non-Christians died before. And I thought, hmm, okay. And I sat down and I wrote what I thought was a magnificent funeral. I mean, it was, it was, it was uh, stirring. You know, as, uh, you know, looking back on it, it was a nightmare. But Dr. Durham, my colleague at the time, we were on church staff together. I'd gone ahead and, and said in the course of the service that the person was going to a better place. And he threw the flag on me. And I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did. Because what I don't want to do is spread imaginary promise pixie dust to people about what actually brings eternal life. The Bible is unequivocal, not vague, crystal clear, full-throated, enthusiastic. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. I mean, look, it's a, it's a holy moment to sit with any family grieving the loss of a loved one. Inevitably, though, one of the requests that's going to be made to me, if I'm doing the funeral, is for me to, A, list off only the good traits of the person, which is fine, I understand that. There's no point in, you know, doing anything else. But then usually, they want me to claim that they're now in a better place. And I've never done that. I've never been willing to do that if they weren't a Christian. Now, there are gracious ways to do that. You, you don't have to, you know, be rude or harsh or anything like that. But if they, if they gave their life to Christ, then we realize that this is a passage from one life to the next, from one life to a better one. But Jesus and the Bible are quite clear. The wicked... Those who are outside of Christ don't go to a better place. There's an actual hell. It's not the devil's playground. It's not a wild party. It's Satan's own worst nightmare. And it's described in places that make me go, I just know I don't want to go there. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, a bottomless pit, a lake of fire, an eternal place of punishment. And, and I think one of the, the, this has become the king of the imaginary promises. I mean, the, the true, royal, imaginary promise. 
that if you just, you know, you donated 10 bucks to the Girl Scouts five years ago, uh, you know, you recycle, uh, you, you drive a Prius, uh, or whatever, you're an overall good person, then you automatically go to a better place. That's not what the Bible teaches. I, w- I would be lying to you if I said I didn't wish it did, but it just doesn't. John 3.16, the most famous Bible passage there is, points out the fact that God didn't send Christ into the world. John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then it says, God didn't send his Son in the world to condemn it, but so that through him he might save it. So if we want to know the depths of the love of God and how much he wants his proverbial house full in heaven, we don't need to look any further than Jesus. So God doesn't send Christ into the world because he hates the world. Far from it. He sends Christ into the world because he desperately loves the world. But at the same time, he offers his son as as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, for all us hypocrites. Because none of us are perfect. And it takes something of the measure of Christ, of God himself being willing to die on our behalf. And yet we, because of how our hearts are inclined, look at that as harsh. Well, he shouldn't have to do that. Well, he felt like he had to, and he did. (laughs) Because... Even then, his love for me is so much greater than my sin that he's willing to go ahead and take that on for me. And it had to be him because I can't drive enough Priuses to get to heaven. I can't, I can't you, know, uh, you know, I don't know, <laughs> fill potholes on the weekend or, or um, you know, give enough uh, money to the local food bank, put enough coins in the Salvation Army jar on my way into Vons. I can't do enough of that to cover the stuff that I do in this life. What I do then is because Christ now lives in me, I do a lot of these types of things anyway, except I go and I'm looking not just to go, how do I meet the material needs of a few people here and there? I'm going to go, okay, God, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if that's in me now, the one that that bears fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, as that's in here, as I'm continuing to follow Jesus, as I'm continuing to become more like him, now I'm doing good everywhere I go, which is different than saying, I'm going to go do good wherever I can. I'm going to ignore Christ and think that I can somehow earn enough like, like it's an Eagle Scout degree. I can get enough merit badges as I go. But it's like you know, that kind of righteousness to stand before God to spend eternity in heaven is like me trying to touch the moon from here. Doesn't matter how good your vertical is. You're not getting there. You're just not getting there. Many people, even increasingly so Christians, believe that there are many ways to God 
or that there are many ways to get God to send you to heaven. But Christians, biblical Christians, believe there's one way to go to a better place, and that is to give our lives over fully to following the one who has gone to prepare a better place for us. That if you want to get into the house someday, you need to know the one who owns it. You need to know the one who built it and the one who sends out the invitations and the one who gives the thumbs up or the thumbs down as to who gets to come in. The good news for us is he says to us that God has built this thing with tons and tons of room because that's what he wants. He wants his house full. But it's only through him. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 11 through 12, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's kind of truish to say good people go to a better place when they die. It's true to say Jesus' people go to a better place when they die. And it's an invitation given to all. It's not given because of your genealogy, biology. It's offered to all. The early Christians felt so strongly about evangelism, they were willing to die trying. But when you don't think, you think kind of everybody who does anything generically good is going to end up in the same spot, why would you share Christ with anybody if it doesn't really matter? So you can see it happen in the lives of even God's people we don't care as much as we used to. And so this, this imaginary promise is something we need to hold up to the light and turn it around, look at it from the different angles. When our imaginary promises take that difficult, difficult turn, where they really start impacting others and impacting, again, what God wants, which is for his house to be full. The end... Jesus says this in John 14, 1 to 7. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you'd really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's that time of year. It's Thanksgiving. When I was a campus pastor, I'd notice all the college kids got depressed this time of year. Um, they're not on campus to get depressed right now. They're trapped where what the source of their depression was, which is at home, many of them. They'd realize I got to go home and be around my crazy Uncle Goober and my Aunt B and my mom and dad who fight all the time or my siblings who are all messed up. And you could see it weigh on them. Thanksgiving is a tough time for a lot of people. And one of the reasons it's tough is because that's often where we remember who's gone to be with the Lord. Uh, my grandmother, Grace White, uh, one of the purest-hearted people that's ever walked this planet, I'm confident. Her own father said he couldn't recall her ever doing anything wrong. I don't know. I want to bottle that stuff and hand it out um, to every parent I can get my hands on. 
She's an amazing woman. She died the summer before him and I were, were, were getting married. I wish she could have made it. I think she would have loved her grandkids. Would have loved them. Um, when she passed, we left a chair at the table for her for that year. And then the next one and the one after that. And we don't, we don't do it today, but, but we used to leave that chair. It was a way of honoring her and saying, we wish you were with us. I don't know, three, four, five years in, we're, we're doing it. And I could see, you know, that first one particularly. First and second ones are really hard. So I could see it in my mom's, you could see the weight on her. You could see her cooking with her shoulders a little more forward than usual. You know, the body language that you get when somebody's, something's weighing on somebody, you know. And uh, we'd sit there with that empty chair. It was uh, two down from me. And we would... Uh, We'd kind of bring up the old stories and talk about her and all that stuff. And some of you are going to have that experience here at Thanksgiving. It occurred to me three or four years in, I go, you know what's funny? I guess she probably, because she's at a whole different banquet where she is. And she may have empty chairs next to her. And she may be going, oh, this is, I can't wait for Tim to get here. We're wanting to be there. She misses us. And, and, and what the hope that heaven gives is this picture of a table with no empty chairs. All those chairs that were emptied here on earth are full again. And to those of us who are even right now, right, I mean, are in this soup of whatever this is we're living through here in 2020. It's a reminder, if we don't get another thing out of 2020, let's get this. This world is not our home. It's a reminder of how fragile this life is, how fragile the best minds of this world are how fragile relationships can be, how fragile many of the things that we take for granted can become. And so what the scriptures give us is a different vision. One of, uh, Jesus says, this house with tons and tons of room and God wants it full. So we're on the invitation committee. All right, that's our job. We're on the invitation committee. So, I'm asking you to join me and with the Christians all around the world and hand out the invitations. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's keeping you back? He says he wants the house full. Some of us like our house is nice and quiet, not God. He wants it full with a lot of screaming kids having fun and rejoicing that the banquet of the Lord has finally come, that this mess is done, that all the tears and disease and grief and disaster is gone, and that now the one who created this world is now going to pull that curtain down, and there now waits for us a whole new reality where he says he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes 
There'll be no more sorrow, no more grief, none of that stuff. No, 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 no more of that, no more of that, no more of that. Now, now we enter in. No more empty chairs. We're going to take communion right now. Uh, picture this as a banquet. Uh, this is our banquet in a Ziploc. <laughs> we do that to keep people, uh, keep people safe. And, and thanks for being willing to distance each other out a little bit and give each other some space and mask up and all that good stuff and allow us to keep going and keep growing. But as we do, that little uh, wafer and grape juice that you get, those are images of a particular picture, the body and blood of Jesus, we do it every week here at New Vintage for a reason. And today we join together with Christians from all over. On the roof, they're joining us. Online, they're joining us. And here in this room, we're going to do this together. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Body and blood of Jesus. No more empty chairs. Not today. So welcome to the table of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. In the taking of the bread and the cup, we say yes. We say yes to Jesus. We say yes to one another. We say yes to being on the invitation committee. Father, this has just been one heck of a year. And while there are many of us that are weighed down, sad, worried, exhausted, <laughs> bored, feeling stifled, uh, feeling like life's not fair, worried about where this world is going, we know that you see it all. And so today, Father, may the promise of heaven, we remember that promise. For those that believe, Father, may we be consumed by the hope of a, of a better world, of a place where there are no more empty chairs, and we can spend our time with you, enjoying that banquet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.